of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. to this episode of Act of Worship. Uh, great to be here this second Sunday of Easter. And, um, you know, so people, people have asked me before, why is Easter a different day every year? It's a legitimate question. <laughs> I used to wonder that myself, you know, Christmas is always December 25th. Why do you have Easter sometime in March, sometimes in April, late April, beginning of April? Um, Easter is always the uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, all, um, it, by the way, Easter is 50 days. It um, ends um, it, when the day before Pentecost. So Pentecost Sunday starts a new season. Um, uh, so it's 50 days, um, but Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, begins um, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And so if anybody ever asks you that, you can tell them that if you remember it. But uh, um, So we were in the second Sunday of Easter. And uh, I want to start off reading a scripture from Psalm 16 I read earlier this week that I think is a good reminder for all of us, including myself. And so Listen to this. This is a, a mitcom of David. If you want to look up that word, it's a type of musical or liturgical uh, psalm. And this was written by David, uh, probably when he was a shepherd. And it starts off, it says this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The um, truth and Excuse me. And the confidence and the hope in this psalm, I think, is one that we all need. Uh, the truth that we have no good apart from God. There's a lot of people that believe that humans are good by nature. There is no, absolutely zero good in us by nature. A baby who is conceived and born in this world, zero good. All humans don't have any good apart from Christ. And in fact, even for those that are lost, any good that comes of them is from the Lord. And so, uh, but the hope that is in this, um, my heart rejoices. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In your right hand are, are pleasures for every, 
evermore. The, the thing that stands out to me in this psalm is the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And we tend to forget that, that God is our provider. It's our security is not in our job. It's not in the government. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about uh, um, government employees right now. And uh, I've been a government employee before. I don't hold, it, hold anything against them. Um, I think they took it the wrong way and thought that I was saying that they're sitting on their tails right now. Uh, I wasn't saying that, um, but um, they have a paycheck coming in, um, whereas a lot of people don't. But even government employees right now who uh, somewhat may feel like they have a little more security than other people uh, because they have a paycheck and it's not going to go away, um, their source, their hope is, and it shouldn't be in the government. And even those who are without jobs right now, they found out very quickly their hope is not in a job. And, um, you know, we all have things that we put our hope in wrongly. Uh, Jesus reminded us that, um, he said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. I think a lot of people have misinterpreted that to mean that the rock was uh, Peter. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe Jesus Christ is the rock and the foundation of our lives in the church. Apostle Paul refers to him as the cornerstone. And if he is not the cornerstone and the foundation of our lives, anything else will be shaken. So the psalmist there says, I will not be shaken. That's because his hope is in God. And so I'm going to do as I've done the past few weeks and start off with a song I'm going to sing. And uh, if you want to sing, you're welcome to. Or you can just listen and worship with me. The lyrics will be on the screen. This is uh, the, an old text that many of us grew up with. It says, I built, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness and truly anything else, anything in this world would be less than Jesus. He is the most, he is the best, he is the most secure on which we can build our hope. And so this song talks about him as our cornerstone so I encourage you to worship Don't ease, I'm changing me. 
it sound Home behind then in him be found Dressed in his righteousness alone For us to stand before the throne Well, hello again, and uh, as I mentioned, this is the second Sunday of Easter, and uh, I'm going to be getting back to the normality of active worship um, on uh, as to how the material that I present. And so, uh, the past few weeks have been uh, basically an exposition of various scriptures. Uh, last week related to the resurrection. Uh, appropriately, it was Resurrection Sunday, and so. Uh, here we are, the second week of Easter, and I'm going to be getting back to discussing matters related to worship, theology, and culture, not really a sermon-type material. Uh, sometimes I might, but uh, today is certainly a biblical and theological topic, but also one that I think is very relevant to our culture right now, particularly the Christian subculture. And so um, I'm going to be talking about and answering the question, how important is the church's weekly worship gathering? And I think it's very appropriate right now. Right now we're facing challenges related to the spread of COVID-19, and churches are discovering creative ways and implementing ideas, um, which many uh, likely would have never uh, thought that they would do. And I was discussing with a pastor recently who pastors a small church and he is not very tech savvy. Uh, it, it's been a challenge for him. They've been streaming online services and it's worked out for them. Uh, but for many people, the biblical and historical f- foundations for gathering in the Christian faith. So uh, the practice of weekly Sunday Christian worship gatherings Uh, really are supported by both the Bible and history. And so while no specific dates or names are mentioned or associated with the church's shift to gathering on a Sunday, um, apparently this practice began in the first century with the early church and the apostles. And um, you see this referenced in Acts 27, and in Acts 20, verse 7, and it mentions the apostles uh, gathering on the first day of the week, and that is Sunday. And so the apostles gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. And uh, uh, this is probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Uh, a note on that, um, in the early church, there were two acts um, referred to as uh, the Lord's Supper or as the Eucharist uh, communion. The Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table really is the most common name uh, in, historically in that, during that time. Um, there were two acts, though. Um, one of them is what we would consider to be the Lord's Table, the, the ordinance of the Lord's Table. The other is referred to commonly as the love feast. And it was not an ordinance. It was not, uh, it certainly it could be considered an act of worship, but not in a liturgical sense. Uh, and this was a feast which Christians gathered around together, maybe at people's homes and that kind of thing. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like, the love feast, uh, love and fellowship between brothers and sisters. And so um, that was also known as the Lord's Supper. But by the third or fourth century, that ceased to be known as the Lord's Supper. It was known as solely the Lord's, uh, the, the love feast. 
and the Lord's Supper was the ordinance which we know. And so um, in Acts 20, verse 7, when the apostles gathered on the first day of the week, every week, to break bread, it's probably a reference to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Um, Acts 2, 42 through 47, it references the fellowship of believers devoting themselves to teaching um, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And this again is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, This is, and there there are extra biblical sources, historical documents. One is called the Didache, a first century document um, that references Christian worship. And they uh, employed the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Certainly, Jesus did not give an increment of time as to how often to uh, take of communion, but the early church did it weekly, every single time they met. And so um, I, I've heard people today um, say that, well, Jesus doesn't tell us how often to do it, so it's okay if we do it quarterly or twice a year or whenever. Um, you're right, he didn't tell us how often to do it, but if it's that important, why would you not do it as often as possible? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, the, um, I digress. The, the breaking of bread and prayer, the, the apostles met on a weekly basis on the first day of the week. And so the author, the author of Hebrews also offers instruction not to forsake meeting together. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Um, and I don't think he's talking about just corporate worship gatherings on Sunday. I think he's talking about... Uh, things beyond that, too. Um, and, and there's an underlying reason. I think he's uh, he has in mind the fellowship of the church and the unity in Christ. And so if that is a perpetual fact, it's not something that needs to be achieved, but it already is. It's something that needs to be exhibited. Then why would you not meet with other fellowship with other believers? And he links gathering to the full of assurance of faith and the forsaking of that practice to sin in Hebrews 10.26. And, and, and there's a reason for that, because if people do not want to be in the fellowship with the body of Christ, what is the underlying reason? Are they living in sin? Are they even saved to begin with? And so it's evident that the weekly corporate gatherings have been vital since the early church. And Sunday was chosen as the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. Okay, there is a distinction if you want to refer to a Sabbath, um, I think you could certainly make an argument for a Christian Sabbath, not just Jewish. Um, that would be the seventh day of the week. Um, and we live in a society where some of these things have to morph a little bit. There are people that work on Sundays. There are people that work on Saturdays. Listen, if the heart's still there, if you have a Sabbath, um, that is not the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Um, if you have to worship with other believers on another day, so be it. Maybe you work or, you know, any number of things. Um, but Sunday was chosen as the Lord's Day for Christians, likely because Jesus rose on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And so since Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Christ, it's appropriate for all churches and all church practices to stem from this event, this event of the resurrection, which we celebrated last week. And we continue to celebrate, and we should perpetually, eternally celebrate. And so the roots of Christian worship did not begin in the first century, but this, uh, what what happened in the first century, what we see in the New Testament, I think should be very um, uh, informative. It should form the way that we think of Christian worship. Um, 
But Christian worship really has its roots centuries before Christ, uh, dating back even to before Israel. In fact, the first time the word worship was used in the Bible, uh, it's when Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord in Genesis 22, 5. And he tells his servants, the boy and I will go and worship. Not music related. <laughs> Never in the Bible is worship linked or related to music. Not one single time. And so I preach this often. Uh, we should stop using worship and music interchangeably. They are not synonymous. Music is a small part of worship, even corporate worship gatherings. Uh, additionally, the Psalms. The Psalms are, are considered to be the hymnal of Israel. Uh, tabernacle and temple worship is an apparent example of Judeo-Christian roots. Uh, Jesus is seen teaching in the temple in the New Testament, Luke 2, 41-52. You can see that, that Jesus is teaching in the temple as a child. Uh, synagogues also might be considered local congregations within Judaism. And so in biblical times, before any group of Jews could establish a new congregation um, and build or use a synagogue, they had to have uh, at least 10 active male members, at least 13 years old. Now, you may, you may be thinking, why 13 years old? Keep in mind, uh, this was adulthood in biblical times. Um when you were 13, people, they were married often at 13, 14 years old. They were considered adult men, and they would meet for services three times daily. And so you had to have that to have a synagogue. And so it's apparent that worship was crucial to Jewish life. And so we would be correct to, uh, to wonder why the importance of worship would change under grace. Why would Jesus consider corporate worship so important that he would teach in the temple at 12 years old, why would that change uh, after the resurrection? The obvious explanation in, in its largest and broadest sense is that it has not changed. If anything, church era believers have more reason to gather corporately and to worship God than even Jews of the Old Testament. The primary difference in approach to worship under the law and worship under the grace is that worship under grace centers around daily lifestyle rather than rituals and acts. Um, now, I want to make a distinction here between um, uh, personal worship and corporate worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to pre present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and this is your spiritual act of worship. It's an act. And so there's personal worship. There also is corporate worship. And what I'm dealing with today specifically is corporate worship. And so rituals for Christians now are more symbolic rather than salvific, rather than something that um, um, imparts some type of grace. Whereas, uh, say, the sacrifice of animals in, in Old Testament times, that, that was some type of imparting grace. And so the biblical and historical foundations of Christian worship need to be understood. We need to understand that, that, that Christian worship has been vital to God's people, uh, since before Christ, uh, in Judeo, I should say Judeo-Christian worship. Um, and so we need to realize its importance. And to claim that corporate gatherings are not necessary would be a mistake, because all those, these, corporate, the, these corporate gatherings don't save us. They have been vital to the church for centuries and need to continue to be so 
since the early church is a model for proper Christian practice. And if that's true, then we can't just assume that, oh, our small groups, I mean, if that's your church, not your corporate worship gathering, then so be it. But to think that corporate worship gatherings are not important, that we don't need them, or that we even diminish their importance, that would be a huge mistake. And so here's the question, is it necessary? Are corporate worship gatherings necessary? Um, Many people, even Christians, argue against corporate gatherings on the primary basis that they are not necessary. In other words, Christians can love God, they can honor him without meeting with other believers for worship on the Lord's Day. And so to that end, it needs to be considered that the New Testament church and the church throughout the centuries really have not agreed with that notion. Uh, and, and really, we should not agree with it today. I don't know where the shift happened, but it, it's been in recent years. And apparently, the, the Bible instructs Christians to gather and, and tells us to gather, not forsake the gathering, so it should be obeyed. This is a scriptural, biblical command. Worship gatherings certainly are not necessary for salvation, uh, but the practice seems to be a natural result of people who have been changed and compelled by the love and mercy of Christ. Um, I was discussing with a pastor one time, uh, I was on staff at a church and I noticed every Sunday there were a, a few people that consistently came, they, they came to worship late. They came in late every single Sunday, five, 10, 15 minutes late and they casually, but in personal relationships, face-to-face relationships, people can see beyond this perception and get to the heart of the matter so that they can offer help. I know there have been times, and, and there have been studies on this that show that if you spend a lot of time on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, you tend to get depressed because what you see is a lot of times the, the, the good aspects of someone else's life. And you think, well, life is just going great for them. <laughs> Why isn't it going so great for me? Um, keep in mind, what you're seeing is sort of a fakeness. Uh, often that's what you see. And so whether someone struggles with finances, job security, family issues, or even some sort of sin, godly people can gather around that individual in prayer in a tangible manner with face-to-face worship gatherings, which it is very difficult to do in a digital relationship. God does not intend for the church to employ solely online relationships, but to be the body of Christ by gathering together. And so my final thing here about the benefits is that there, another benefit is uh, face-to-face gatherings is a matter of preference. Um, in, in general, face-to-face relationships are still preferred over digital relationships in daily life. Listen to this quote. This is from psychologist uh, Jacinta Francis. It's, uh, and she says this, social support is a strong predictor of mental health. Uh, Modern psychology is rightfully skeptical of the value of uh, digital relationships as opposed to -to face-to-face relationships. And so while virtual conversations, relationships, and even gatherings, I believe, have their place in society and perhaps even in the church, they do not suffice for what real-world relationships may offer. Besides a small number of people per capita... Real human relationship, contact, and conversation is the preference for most people. And so I believe God designed it this way. 
A lot of what I'm telling you here is my opinion, <laughs> but I believe ha- I have biblical and uh, historical and psychological basis for these these opinions. Digital communication did not catch God by surprise. He did not sit there and think, oh, I didn't know that people would have social media one day to keep in touch. His intention was for his redeemed people to develop and cultivate cultivate relationships in a personal manner. And so the church exists as one unified body and visibly living as this unified body by gathering together is crucial to how the health uh, to, to the health and the effectiveness of Christ's bride of the church. And so God intended for us to meet together, to gather together in person. While digital resources, I think, can be used in magnificent ways for God's glory, and we're seeing that right now, virtual relationships and especially worship gatherings can never replace face-to-face gatherings. And there are people right now that are arguing that the church is not necessary, that they don't need to meet together. They can just continue the online stuff that they're doing. As a matter of opinion... I should state that choosing to gather digitally, which is really no gathering at all, it's really not, when in person, okay, when that is is available, when that's an option, it's dishonoring to God and to the people of God. Even with current technology, corporate Christian gatherings should be face-to-face when possible. In other words, the overwhelming majority of the time. And I understand that right now for many people it's not possible or they're making decisions to be wise and socially distance. Um, but when possible, when available, face-to-face gatherings should be what people employ, not online gatherings. And so the question, the ultimate question in determining how important the church's weekly worship gathering is, is this. For whom do Christians gather? And in considering weekly Christian worship, believers need to ask this question, and it will aid in their determinations. For whom do Christians gather? The apparent overarching answer, I think, is God, and certainly worship exists for the glory of God, as does everything else. The Apostle Paul said, all things are from God, through God, and to God. And so, But what believers need to understand is that Christian worship is also a tool to form the people of God. The the reformers claimed an incredible Latin phrase that said, lex orande lex credendi, or loosely translated, how we worship is how we become. You know, we often think that um, how we become is how we worship. In other words, how we think is how we worship, but how we worship is how we begin to think and who we become. It forms us. And so contrary to popular opinion, during corporate worship, God works for his people more than his people work for him. And so Christians are quick to claim God as the object of worship, which he certainly is. But keep in mind, he is also the subject of worship. In other words, he's not only the one receiving the worship, but he is the one working in the act. In other words, it's it's not the Christians who are working. God is also the subject of worship. And so the Holy Spirit manifests himself in the lives of believers as they worship God together. And so stemming from the overarching purpose of God's glory, the, the ultimate purpose in life, 
Christian corporate worship should be understand to possess a formative purpose. That is why we worship. We are formed. We worship for the glory of God, and the way he is glorified is he forms us. So worship, glorifying God, both personal and corporate, is the single most important aspect of Christian life. Period. End of story. It is the overarching purpose of Christian life. And it's starting to drive me crazy when you ask someone, a Christian, what is the purpose of life? And you ask 100 different people, they'll give 100 different answers. Many of them, it's to reach the lost. That is not the overarching purpose of Christian life. Period. End of story. The overarching purpose is glorifying God. Reaching the lost is a part of that. And so uh, worship is the overarching purpose of the Christian life. Corporate worship, okay? Now, I, I was talking about worship in general, but corporate worship, the corporate weekly gathering of God's people likewise, is the single most important act that the church employs each week. The most important act that the church employs is not a homeless ministry. It is not a missions ministry. It is not Wednesday night Bible study. It is, it is not a prayer meeting. All of those are vital. They are vastly important. But the single most important that the church does on a weekly basis is corporate worship. The corporate gathering of God's people together in the same place, face to face. And so this has been true since the early church. Um, historically, biblically, this has been true. Um First, first century, since the first, uh, first century, since um, not long after Christ ascended, this has been true. And it will continue to be true, it, true. And so while the church is currently experiencing a vastly different approach to Christian worship right now, okay, we should never be content with an extended version of the current trend. This is temporary. Okay, this is temporary. Uh, there are states that are mandating... Uh, not gathering together. Texas is not yet. I'm thankful for that, but there are states that are doing it. Um, and churches are trying to be as creative as, as possible. Online gatherings, drive-in meetings, you know, and that's one way to meet together in person, really, drive-in meetings. And and at least according to science, there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you're safe if you do that. It's not something that is, you're still social distancing if you have a drive-in meeting. Um, I, I saw a video recently, a church in Mississippi, of all places, did a drive-in gathering, and the governor had mandated no gatherings, and a police officer went and wrote $500 tickets to everybody there. Um, you know, and, and someone told me, well, wasn't it a, a law, wasn't it a, an edict that the governor passed down? And I said, yes, but it's an unjust law, and in that case, civil disobedience is absolutely right. These people should continue to gather, even if it is a drive-in service, because that is absolutely a, an unjust law. And I don't know how anybody would disagree with that when that is a very safe manner of meeting. Uh, science doctors have not said that that is something that, that should be avoided. Um, and so we should never be content with the current trend. As soon as we are able, as soon as Christians can gather together again, face-to-face -face meetings should be the normal act, and anything else should rightly be criticized. And so I hope I've answered some questions here as the, the, the overarching question that I've asked and, and dived into is, 
how important is the church's weekly worship gathering? It is of utmost importance, and we should not take it for granted. So often, worship is, if let's say you have a list of the church's top four or five priorities, worship might be number three or four on that list, when it should be primary, it should be number one, period, end of story, everything else should stem from that overarching purpose. And so corporate worship gatherings, I think, are a huge part of that. And uh, hopefully I have answered. There's been a lot of opinion in this, um, but I've given some basis and foundation, biblical, historical foundations for this. Uh, And just remember, lex orandi, lex credendi, as we worship is how we become. And uh, my hope and prayer is that we become more like Christ in every thought that we have. Um, We're not going to be perfect but hopefully in our sanctification process, we become more and more like Christ. So uh, thank you on this second Sunday of Easter for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. And thank you for joining me today. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it. Did it.